Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. Romans chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to thank you for your prayers this last week. I know last Sunday we mentioned that the pastoral staff and um, a few others were going to be at the Feed My Sheep conference in Atlanta, and I spoke there, and uh, actually Nikki spoke during the luncheon for the ladies as well. And uh, the Lord was really gracious. We had a good conference. I think uh, the Lord was with me and helped me as I spoke, and uh, I believe through uh, the messages of the men there, a number of pastors were really encouraged and helped, and so really appreciate your prayers. Uh, also grateful that Don uh, prayed this morning for the uh, events that are taking place at Asbury. It seems to be a genuine revival that is taking place there, and uh, doesn't seem to be manufactured, but seems to be a genuine work of the Lord, and so we praise God for that, and uh, we want to continue to pray that the Lord would protect and nurture what's taking place there. And one of the things that we can pray is that God in His grace, uh, the work that is being done there might spread to local churches uh, and local churches across our country because uh, we know that we desperately need uh, the Lord's fresh awakening and revival. And so we can pray for that. Well, this morning we're going to turn to Romans chapter 7. We've been in a series in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And uh, we finished chapter 6. And this morning we will turn our attention to Romans chapter 7. And so I'll begin reading for us in verse 1 and read through to verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and for the great hope that you have given us in the gospel. And Lord, we thank you for how Paul in these chapters lays out for us this great hope that you have granted to us in Christ and the reality that in Christ we can know true victory over sin and progress in our Christian lives. Lord, we pray that as we consider these truths this morning that you would give us understanding and insight, wisdom, And Lord, we pray that we would know this grace and this power in our own lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I made the point from Romans chapter 6 that God has written His moral DNA into the universe that He created, and that it's fixed, it's certain. 
And this moral fixedness in the universe is actually a serious problem for atheists and agnostics. Agnostics. In the end, they don't know how to account for it. Why is it that certain actions and moral choices lead to certain consequences, whether good or bad? You see, we cannot escape the moral code of the universe. In fact, this is where C.S. Lewis begins in his classic entitled Mere Christianity. The first section of the book, which is written largely to skeptics, the first section of the book is entitled Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. And Lewis opens his book by observing, quote, Everyone has heard people quarreling. They say things like this, How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. And children as well as grown-ups. End of quote. You see, what Lewis is pointing to there is that in each of those scenarios, the individuals are appealing to an assumed standard of right and wrong. Lewis himself actually lived during the events of World War II, and Lewis reflects on the atrocities committed by Hitler, and he asks this question, quote, what was the sense in saying the enemy were wrong unless right is a real thing? which the Nazis at bottom knew and ought to have practiced. If they had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair." End of quote. And then finally, Lewis makes this very practical observation. Quote, But the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining. It's not fair. End of quote. And isn't that so true? Even those who claim, well, there's no right and wrong. When they get into the real nitty-gritty of life, they instinctively appeal to a right and to a wrong. And the reason is, is because God has created us all with a sense of right and wrong. Instinctively, we know that there is a moral law, a moral code that governs the universe. Now, the Bible teaches us that apart from divine revelation, which we have in the Scriptures, We don't know how to properly relate to this moral law, to this moral code. Instinctively, we know it's there. We appeal to it all the time. But in our fallen nature, we don't know how properly to relate to it. If we're irreligious, we will bristle against it. We will resent it. We will try to negotiate our lives around it. If we're religious, we'll acknowledge it. We'll try to live up to it. But unfortunately, that only leads to frustration and insecurity because we will find that we are in the end unable to keep the law that we so revere. 
It's in the Bible that we learn that the purpose of the gospel is not to enslave us to the law, this law that we all know exists, but rather the purpose of the gospel is to deliver us from the law. In fact, Paul teaches us in our text this morning that the only way we can properly relate to the law is if we die to it. If we die to the law. This is what we were reading about this morning in Galatians chapter 3 from the scripture reading. We must die to the law as a hope of salvation. We must realize that we cannot uphold the perfect standard of the law. So instead, we trust in Jesus who died for our transgressions against the law on the cross and paid the penalty that we deserve of the law, the penalty of the law. He paid it on our behalf so that we can be forgiven. But what Paul is going to teach us this morning in Romans chapter 7 is that not only do we need to die to the law as a hope of salvation, we must die to the law as a hope for sanctification. And that's what we've been considering in Romans 6 through 8, right? Sanctification, growing in holiness, growing in righteousness. We could say it this way, making progress in morality. And what Paul teaches us in the text this morning is that it's the gospel that declares this counterintuitive truth that we can only live out the morals and the ethics and the character of the law if we die to the law. It's only if we die to the law that paradoxically we will discover the grace and the power to increasingly live a life that reflects the character of the law. So this is Paul's concern in Romans chapter 7. Paul began to address this matter actually back in Romans chapter 6 verse 15. You can look there in chapter 6 verse 15 and Paul raises this question. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And then you see his immediate answer there, by no means. And then he goes on in the rest of chapter 6 to explain to us that law and grace represent two different errors in salvation history. That the error of the law was characterized by the reign of sin. And we talked about this at some length, but the error of the law was characterized by the reign of sin. And this was illustrated through the life and the rebellion of the nation of Israel. But now, in Christ, we live in the era of grace. And through Christ, we've been delivered from the bondage and the slavery of sin and become slaves of God. We've been delivered by the power of the gospel to live a life of righteousness and obedience, which results in sanctification and eternal life. So now in Romans 7, Paul continues to address this matter. He continues to address this matter of how the Christian who is saved by grace through faith in Jesus now relates to the law. So we're going to turn this morning to our text, and I want us to see what Paul has to teach us here in these first six verses of chapter 7 of how the Christian is to relate to the law. We'll consider our passage in three parts, okay? So this is our outline. First, we will see that Paul presents us with a principle. So first, a principle. Secondly, an illustration. And then third, the main point. So a principle, an illustration, and then the main point. So look there in verse 1 of chapter 7, and we see, first of all, a principle. Paul writes there, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, in verse 1, Paul, when he speaks of the law here, he may be speaking of the law generally, even be speaking of civil law, or he may be speaking of the law of Moses in particular. But either way, Paul is appealing to a universal truth that is accepted by all. A law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And that word binding there is actually kuriuo in the original language. It's closely related to the Greek word kurios, which we translate as lord or master. And so the idea here is, when he says that the, the law is binding, it could be that word binding could be translated to exercise authority or to have control over, to rule over, to master, to dominate. So notice how some other translations translate chapter 7, verse 1. The New American Standard translates it, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Or the New King James Version says, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Or the New International Version says, the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So this is the principle that Paul is trying to establish. The law is binding, it has jurisdiction, it has dominion, it has authority over someone only as long as they live. Now Paul goes on, this is our second point, to illustrate this truth.